You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, New City. Uh, Welcome. My name is Caleb. Thanks so much for being here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in chapter 2 today, Nehemiah chapter 2. If you're using one of the, uh, the black Bibles under your chairs there, it's page 398. 398. Just a quick word of instruction. When we get to the point where we're going to read scripture, which is going to be in a couple minutes here, um, it's not going to be on the screen. Just the passage is so long. Um, it's not going to be on the screen this morning. So um, have a, you know, your, the old school physical Bible out or your uh, phone handy when it's time to, to read scripture. So Nehemiah chapter two. Last week, uh, if you were here, Nick talked about courage, and what he said, what one quote that he said has stuck with me all week. He said this, courage is the currency that will be most needed in the church in the coming days. Courage is the currency that will be most needed in the church in the coming days. I've been thinking about that over and over this week. We have an aversion to risk-taking, don't we? How often are we forced to dig down into the tank of courage? Probably not very often. How often when we do, do we find very little there? We live in a safety-first world, don't we? We're conditioned to avoid risk, avoid situations that make us uncomfortable. We get angry even when we are forced into a situation um, that's outside of our control, and we're presented with the slightest risk. With the more that I read Nehemiah, I see a completely different set of priorities, friends. I can't get past his courage to pursue the glory of God, his courage to take steps of obedience, his courage to see it through in the face of opposition. If Nick is right, and I think he is, The church, we are in great need of courage today. New City Church is in great need of courage, not because we are a bunch of weaklings, but because the opposition and the task in front of us is so great. So I have this one goal in mind for this message today, one primary thing that I've asked God to do, and that is to fill us with courage today. But courage for what? That's the next question, right? This message won't make any sense unless we understand what we need courage for. Why do we need it at all? Sure, there's some crazy stuff going on in the world, right? But it doesn't really affect me. I can still come to church for now. I can still sing songs for now. I can pretty much go about my day the way I want and live how I want. What is all this talk about courage? Courage for what? So to answer that question, I would just like to provide the rest of the quote from Nick from last week. He said this, the greatest currency for the church in the coming days will be courage. Courage to believe, courage to stand, and courage to protect the vulnerable and the weak. Courage for what? Courage to believe, courage to stand, 
and courage to protect. Church, we need courage to believe the gospel when the entire world thinks we are crazy for doing so. The fact that we believe this book is inerrant and infallible and has authority in our lives and that we follow the teachings of a rabbi from 2,000 years ago makes us look like fools in the eyes of the world. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead and now rules over the universe and calls people everywhere to repent and follow him, all of that changes everything in our lives, doesn't it? Will you continue to confess Jesus as your Lord when the heat gets turned on? It's going to get turned on, my friends. We need courage to stand in the truth of God's word. Friends, these past couple years have caused great upheaval in the American church. Many who once stood firm have denied the faith. Many who claimed the word of God as the truth have compromised. They've grown weary of the fight. They've walked away from the church. We need courage to plant our feet firmly in the truth of the scriptures. And last, we need courage to fight and protect for the vulnerable and the weak. Who are the most vulnerable and weak in our society? Children, unborn children, slaughtered by the millions, the elderly, widows, orphans, those with special needs, those who are marginalized and forgotten, those in our own city who are stuck in a culture of violence, addiction, and abuse, who will stand for them? Who will fight for them and befriend them and offer them the hope of Jesus? And who will do that when it means we're probably going to get blasted and defamed on social media for doing it? Or people might show up with signs in our parking lot or call for physical violence. Church, we need courage in these days. Courage to proclaim the gospel, to say no when our leaders push for laws and policies that will hurt our community, courage to get in the fight and not retreat. I read a quote this week from Douglas MacArthur, who's a general during World War II. He said this, last, but by no means, we need courage. Moral courage, the courage of one's convictions, the courage to see things through. The world is in a constant conspiracy against the brave. It's the age-old struggle, he says, the roar of the crowd on one side and the voice of your conscience on the other. I would change it just a bit. The roar of the crowd on one side and the voice of God on the other. We need courage to stand, friends. Nehemiah knew what God had called him to do, and he had the courage to follow through it. Please stand with me as we read Nehemiah chapter 2. It says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad? 
when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph... And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard, servant heard of this, it pleased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, give light to our eyes this morning and fill our hearts with courage, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I have four points from this passage today. Number one, the first thing we see in this passage is that courageous risk moves the hand of God. We're talking about courage this morning. We see courageous risk moves the hand of God. This is verses one through eight. I'm not going to read all that again. But we see in those verses, verses 1 through 8, that Nehemiah takes a massive risk here. He's sad in the face, in the presence of a king. That's illegal. You could be killed for that, okay? But he uses that opportunity to make a request to go back to Jerusalem. Now, there's three things I want us to see here about this risk that he takes. The first thing is the necessity of prayer. Talk about courageous risk-taking, the necessity 
of prayer. If you remember from chapter 1, almost the entire chapter in Nehemiah 1 is Nehemiah's prayer for help. He specifically asked God to give him success in what he's doing for the king to show him mercy. He specifically asks for that. Then in our passage, in verse 4, we're told Nehemiah prays again, pretty much in the middle of the conversation with the king. It says, and then I prayed to the Lord. In these prayers, we get a picture of Nehemiah's humble dependence upon God. His heart is broken for his people and his homeland, but why? Because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city of God the place where God's presence dwelt, the city set on a hill to be a light to the nations so the nations could see how great and awesome God was that he would do such a thing for the Jewish people. They would be so distinct. They would be so, so pure and so holy and so set apart. The nations would see and they would, they would delight to come and join with them in worshiping the one true God. But Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple had been rebuilt. But the city, the walls of the city were still destroyed. Things were not right. Nehemiah knew that something had to be done. He had a desire to go back, but he knows that changing the heart of the king is out of his control, so he pleads with God in prayer. Talk about courageous risk-taking. It starts with prayer, friends. One quote I read this week went like this, courage is fear that has said its prayers. Are we a praying people, church? But we also see not just the necessity of prayer, but the necessity of initiative. Nehemiah didn't just pray and sit back and wait for a miracle. He didn't just let go and let God. You ever heard that? Just let go and let God, friends. Come on, sister. Just let go and let God, right? Just pray, just lay before the Lord. Just let God deal with it. I mean, I've probably said it. I've probably said it, okay? No, Nehemiah knew what God was calling him to do because he knew the heart of God. He was just waiting for the right time to actively step into the risk. He takes action and approaches the king. We're, we're told that he was very afraid he, because he was looking sad in the presence of the king. Like I said, it was illegal to look sad in the presence of the king. You could be killed because looking sad in the presence of the king meant that you might not be happy with his leadership, and he can't stand that because kings, especially Persian kings, were considered gods in that time. You could be killed for such a thing. But Nehemiah uses the opportunity to make his case and risk his life with his request to return to Jerusalem. And so we see both sides of this, friends. When we think about risk-taking, courageous risk-taking, there's two pitfalls we need to avoid, okay? One pitfall is the let go and let God mentality. We just pray and sit back and we do nothing. We take no initiative we don't apply ourselves to investigating or working hard or seeking counsel. We lay it before the Lord and expect things to just work out through some kind of supernatural intervention. This is not how God intends for us to live our lives, friends. But the other pitfall to avoid is avoiding prayer altogether. And we start desperately grasping for control over the situation. Have you been here? You're in a situation you don't like. 
The first thing you do is not go to God in prayer, not to ask the question of what would what might God be teaching me here? What what is what does He have for me? We just try to fix it. We try to control it. We try to grasp at any sort of control in the situation. That's not wise either. We see both of these things in the life of Nehemiah: his humble dependence upon God in prayer, and his active initiating, taking steps. One commentator says this, he says, besides seeking God's help in prayer, Nehemiah utilized all the human resources available, including his intellectual capabilities, his past experiences, his accumulated wisdom, his role and position in life, and the people with whom he came in contact, okay? So we have the necessity of prayer, the necessity of initiative, and we have the good hand of God at work for his people. We see at the end of verse 8, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was on me. Church, God delights to hear our prayers. He delights to grant our requests. How courageous would we be if we really believe the good hand of God is at work for us? How much would we pray if we really believe that our prayers actually affect the purposes of God? How much risk would we be willing to take if we knew that nothing bad can befall us but that which God has ordained for our good? Do you want the hand of God on your life? Then lay your burdens before him in prayer and take action for his glory and watch what he does. We don't have to be afraid, friends. We can be courageous. Number two, courageous preparation provides perspective. Courageous preparation provides perspective. It's a mouthful. Uh, This is verses 11 through 16. It says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told Noah what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate, to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. When Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he waits three days, and he goes out and he inspects the walls of the city. He does his inspection at night with a a very small group of people, and he doesn't tell anyone what his plans are. Now, this might not seem very courageous. Nehemiah is essentially performing a building inspection, right? How much more boring can you get? Big deal, right? What does, what does this have to do with courage? But church, we can learn a few things here. So often, those who are called to lead must spend the majority of their time not in front, not in the spotlight, but in preparation, behind the scenes. This means putting in the long hours, the late nights, the early mornings, away from the spotlight, away from the presence of others. The hard, the secret work of preparation is necessary, friends. 
if we're going to be, if we're going to stand out front of other people, if we're going to have courage to stand on God's word and try to motivate others in the, the task of ministry, we've got to spend the time in the secret, in the long hours. We've got to burn the midnight oil. If you've ever taught a lesson or preached a sermon or made a presentation or you have a degree, you know this, right? The hard work in the study is what prepares you for leadership. What a leader does in secret away from the spotlight says a lot about what his priorities are. Everyone enjoys the roar of the crowd, the praise of men, the excitement of leadership, and the public recognition, right? But are we willing to do the hard work of inspection, observation, especially when no one is looking? Nehemiah was. So church, before we jump headlong or headfirst into risk, we need to know the conditions of the work. God has called us to this area, this city, this community. Let's do the hard work of investigating, observing, and inspecting so that when the time comes, we are prepared for the work that God has for us. Now, um, we have a pastor who has been trained in this. Uh, part of, of Nick's job in moving here is to exegete the city, right? We have a leader. I'm so thankful that God has brought Nick here. He knows this city. He sees the needs I'm so thankful that we can get behind this work here at New City. If you're not part of a church, please come join us in this as we rebuild the ruins that are all around here. Number three, proclamation inspires courageous action. Proclamation inspires courageous action. Verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come. Let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. So when the time comes for Nehemiah to take action, he's inspected the walls, he's evaluated the damage. The time comes to take action. What does he do to rally the workers? Does he rally them behind him? No. He proclaims the faithfulness of God. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And they said, let us rise up and build. One thing I love about this church, friends, is that we build in regular times of recounting God's faithfulness. Every service, after every service, we have a time where we remember and we reflect on what God is doing. During our villages each week, we take time for people to tell their story of how God has moved in their life. During our family meetings or our business meetings, we make time for people to recount ways that God is moving in our church and in our city. And of course, every Sunday we sing and we proclaim God's covenant faithfulness in the scriptures. We cannot overstate the importance of proclaiming God's faithfulness on our behalf. I mean, how many times has your desire for Christ been weak and waning? And just spending time 
with someone, another believer, hearing how God is moving in their life and the hope that that brings, the encouragement that is to your soul. And I'm weak, I'm waning, but man, my, my sister over here, hearing about how God is moving in, in her life and changing her life and the things that, that, that are going on there, that's good for me. It's good for my soul. It restores us. It ought to be natural for us to talk about what God is doing, how his good hand is at work. This kind of proclamation inspires courage in one another. Brothers and sisters who might be struggling or hurting, proclaiming God's faithfulness gets people back in the fight. It drowns out distractions. It reshapes gospel priorities, and it fuels others for rebuilding the ruins. This is what Nehemiah did. It's not me. It's not my power. Don't get behind me. Look at God. Look at what he has done. He changed the heart of this pagan Persian king doesn't believe any of this stuff. Artaxerxes doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't believe, doesn't worship this God. He thinks he's God. And look at what he has done. Look at what he's given us. Who in your life needs to hear how God has been faithful? Is it you? Your kids? Your spouse? Your neighbors and friends? Take time this week and talk about how the good hand of God has been at work. My last point, number four, courageous action invites opposition. Courageous action invites opposition. Verses 9 and 10 and then 19 and 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Skip down to 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will prosper us, make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The last thing I want us to see is that when we are faithful in the good work of God, we will inevitably face resistance, mockery, and persecution. There is no escaping this, friends. The only way to escape resistance to Jesus is to retreat from the mission of Jesus. If you want to escape this, it's retreat. The only way to escape resistance to Jesus is to retreat from the mission of Jesus. And we can't retreat, friends. When we are faithful in rebuilding the ruins so that the light of the gospel goes forward, we will run headlong into the idols of our culture. It's going to happen. It has to happen. It's the whole point. We don't have to create this conflict. The conflict will find us. Remember what Nick said. I've said it a couple times. The greatest currency for the church in the coming age is going to be courage. And church, I want you to know that we are in that coming age now, today. 
this moment. It's here. Courage is not something that hopefully we can get tomorrow or maybe a year from now. It's not something that maybe one day I'll have. I'll be able to stand for truth once I kind of get some more education and really, really, really believe the the Bible. No, that day is today. In case you haven't noticed, the Sanballats and the Tobias and the Geshems are everywhere. They just go by different names. Today, they're called Twitter and Facebook and the mainstream media. Toxic places, cesspools of negativity and hatred towards Christianity. Opposition to the Christian worldview is all around us. We are being bombarded with lies and deception and delusion in our culture. Have you seen the destruction that exists all around us? If not, you need to grab a donkey and go around the city and see some of the ruins. Take a stroll. Look and listen to what's happening right here. Is your heart broken? Is your heart broken for your city the way Nehemiah's was? My wife starts, started substitute teaching this, this year, and she comes home with stories about kids that, she, that are in her classrooms. Hurting children that are in homes full of abuse and addiction and neglect, violence. God has placed you here, right here, right now, so that you might be an instrument of transformation. Look at what's happening in our government and what is reflected in our laws. Look at what's promoted by the most influential institutions in our day. You want to talk about the dung gate? Look at the garbage that is celebrated and affirmed by our media and pop culture. Look at the state of the American church and how the last couple of years have thrown so much of it into confusion and disarray. Friends, our culture is in ruins. The walls are down. We cannot comfort ourselves with the fact that we can still come to church buildings and sing and pray and hear God's word. These things are great. We need them. I'm not, there's nothing negative at all. This is awesome. But the Christian faith is meant to be one of world conquest. World conquest. Not with swords or guns but the message of the gospel to all nations. All nations. Jesus tells us to go, baptizing and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. You see, living in obedience to God means pursuing the transformation of the culture through the proclamation of the gospel. We've got to get that, friends. As the gospel goes forth, people's hearts are changed, and brick by brick, the house of the Lord is built. The walls are erected, and this work continues until the rule and reign of Jesus covers the entire earth. And even though the story of Nehemiah took place 500 years before Jesus was born, it's this heart desire that motivated Nehemiah to take his courageous action. The city my father's is in ruins. This can't be. I can't stand for this. The glory of God has departed. We were supposed to be a light to the nations, but the light is gone, and this ought not be so. 
I have to get back there. I have to rebuild. Are we seeing the rule and the reign and the light of Jesus over all the earth, friends? In so many ways, we have turned Christianity into an internal, abstract spirituality that has almost no bearing in the culture in which we live. I don't want that for New City Church. This is why so many churches have such little influence in the places they exist. The question I've been asking myself this week is this. Am I okay with the physical world around me being demolished, with people living in destitution, with souls perishing and going to hell, with secularism reigning as the worldview of our nation, as long as I can still say that Jesus is the Lord of my heart? Am I okay with that? I shouldn't be. Notice the second question Nehemiah is asked here. They say, they ask, are you disobeying the king? This is the question of ultimate authority, friends. It's the same question we have to ask ourselves today. What is our authority? You're not going against the king, are you, Nehemiah? You're not going to disobey the law, are you? Now, how does he respond? He doesn't appeal to the authority of the king, even though he had it. He had the approval of the king to do what he did. But he appeals to the authority of who? The God of heaven. The God of heaven will make us prosper and we will arise and build. And then notice what he says next. You have no right or claim in Jerusalem. In other words, this city belongs to the God of heaven. And if you're not in it, if you're not with it, it's time to leave. Church has struck me this morning as I was preparing this. This is the same conflict that is going on in our day. It is a conflict of authority. And isn't it interesting that after Jesus rises from the dead, right before he ascends to the Father, he gives the church our rebuilding instructions. Okay? He tells us to rebuild. And how does, he, how does he tell us to do it? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That's what we are commanded to do. That's the church's rebuilding instructions right there. But what does he say right before that? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me, to Jesus Church, we have been given the authority of King Jesus. This city, this state, this country, this entire planet, every institution, every family, every human soul belongs to Jesus. Not just your family, not just the church, every human soul, every square inch will bow the knee to Jesus one day. If our hearts have been transformed by the power of the gospel, then we are called to take that message and get to work rebuilding the ruins all around us. Friends, what Nehemiah is doing here is simply putting into action the transformation that's already taken place in his heart. His heart's been stirred. His anger has been kindled. His love for his people and his homeland is ablaze. He says, I have to do something. I have to go. 
when we are faithful in the mission of Christ and we meet opposition, we can meet it with courage because we have been given the task by the one who has the authority over all things, Jesus. Now, talked a lot about courage today. Courage to take risks. Courage to proclaim God's faithfulness. Courage in the face of resistance. And if you're anything like me, you may not feel very courageous. If you're anything like me, when you look into the not-so-distant past, maybe you see a pattern not of courage, but of weakness, even cowardice at times. Times when I should have stood strong, but I caved. Times when people were hurt and lives were damaged because of poor decisions or the fear of man or just my lack of perseverance. We have regrets in our lives. Do you feel like the city of your heart is in ruins today? The walls have crumbled. The enemy has taken over. That plaguing sin that just won't go away. That toxic relationship that steals your joy and leaves you empty. Those habits that you know are not pleasing to the Lord, but you just, you just can't seem to shake them. You might be thinking, Caleb, you're talking about all this courage and Nehemiah rebuilding a city. I can't even get my own life together. I don't have the courage to get victory in my own life. I'm in ruins. If that's you this morning, I have good news. First of all, welcome, <laughs> because we're all in the same place. The good news is that our God is a rebuilding God. He is a seeking God. He is a sending God. Because about 450 years after Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, there would be another person who would look down at the ruins in our world. His name would be Jesus. And like Nehemiah, his heart would be broken too. His anger would be kindled. He would have a desire to get down there and rebuild what was lost at the fall. And, just, and Jesus, just like Nehemiah, would choose to leave the presence of a king and enter into the darkness with his people. He comes to earth. He surveys the damage. He gets to work calling people out of sin and into his marvelous light. He courageously proclaims the faithfulness of God, submitting himself to his Father and bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And not only does he risk his life, he freely gives it as an atoning sacrifice for his people. And three days later, he rises from the dead, gains victory over death, ascends to heaven, and now sits enthroned as a supreme authority over all things. This is our Savior, friends. This is our King. And now anyone, including you, with your soul in ruins, anyone who turns from sin and places their faith in this Jesus is restored to a new creation, and the rebuilding begins. 
The perfect life of Jesus is counted as yours. All your sin and failings are nailed to the cross. Our God is a rebuilding God, friends. If you're here and you lack courage, take heart. The most courageous man who ever lived is calling you to follow him. Is your soul in ruins today? Then turn to Jesus and be rebuilt. And for those who are followers of Christ, my prayer for us is that we would be filled with courage today. We have a king who sits enthroned in the heavens. His name is Jesus. May we courageously get to work rebuilding the ruins all around us as we proclaim the good news of our king who has come to make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we need courage. I pray, God, that this would not be an abstract idea, but I pray this week that you would put in front of us opportunities, even just small things, Father, small steps we can take to live courageous lives, not to promote ourselves, not to build ourselves up, but to point people to you, your faithfulness. God, I pray for this church. I pray for our city. Lord, you have brought us here together to be transformational, to be transformed, and to see people's hearts and lives transformed by the power of the gospel. May we be faithful in that mission. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take some time now. As I mentioned earlier, we do this every Sunday. Uh, we're going to take some time to reflect on what we have heard. We're going to reflect. We're going to remember. We're going to respond. Reflect on what God has been saying to you today. I've said a lot. What's one thing? One thing that even now the Holy Spirit might be bringing to your memory. One verse, one idea, one thought that you just can't, can't get out of your head. Reflect on that. What is God calling you to do? Second, we're going to remember. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper. We have cups up here with wafers and, and juice. And why do we do this? We do it because we are commanded to. But we're, we do it because the wafer, the, the bread, symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for us. The cup symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed on our behalf. And when we observe the Lord's Supper, Scripture tells us this, that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's a great privilege, friends. So we're going to reflect, we're going to remember by observing the Lord's Supper, and then we're going to respond. I'm sorry, rehearse. We're going to rehearse. What are we rehearsing? We're rehearsing what we're going to be doing at the end of the age. When all tribes, tongues, and nations are gathered around the throne singing to the lamb that was slain for us. We're going to do that. We're going to sing together. So let's take some time now to reflect, remember, and respond.